0: Hey, you're listening to the Adventures in Advising Podcast with Colm Cronin and Matt Markin. Are you passionate about working with students and making a difference in their lives? Then join us as we bring together those in the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and their own advising stories. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also follow us on our social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. And as always, keep advising.
1: Hello and welcome to Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey,
0: greetings and salutations, everyone. This is Matt Markin, and welcome again to episode 23 of Adventures in Advising. We are halfway through November and ever closer to being done with 2020. We're almost there. 2021, here we come. And as always, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast journey into academic advising. We cannot do any of this without you. And on a personal note, I want to give a shout out to Charlie Nutt from Nakata. Charlie has announced his retirement at the end of June 2021. Charlie joined Nakata in 1992, was associate director in 2002, and has been executive director since 2007. Charlie is one of our top supporters of the podcast and is someone that I can call a mentor and a dear friend. I share the same sentiment that many others have shared, that it's bittersweet. We are happy that you're retiring, Charlie, but we can't think of Nakata without thinking of you. And a shout out tied to this is from Anna Trekova, academic success, adult learning, education, consulting professional, who posted on LinkedIn regarding episode 21 of our podcast that had Charlie on it. And um, this is what was said. Recently, I was asked by a student to name a leader I admire and explain what qualifies or skills I admire in this person. Charlie Nutt was among the people that came to mind as I was quickly drafting a mental list of leaders I could talk about. So thank you so much, Anna, for that. And thank you, Charlie, as well. And also shout out to Gavin Farber, Loxley Nibs, Shannon Chobinger, Lisa Yamin, Carrie Agnostic on their Nakata webinar, Redefining the Mid-Level. Excellent job that you all did. And thank you so much for the shout out about our podcast that you did during your webinar. Very much appreciated. But Colin, what do you think of
1: Charlie retiring? And what other thanks and shout outs do we have? Charlie. He has continually supported us um, in our undertakings and I really just want to pay tribute to his leadership. Um, I've said it on the the podcast before, when I grow up I want to be Charlie Nutt and uh, I certainly stand over that. He's a phenomenal person, an incredible leader and a truly inspirational character. To me, he embodies what an educator aspires to. So just want to say thank you, Charlie. I want to thank our listeners for helping us get to 6,000 downloads just a couple of weeks ago. I'm really honoured to reach that as a a milestone within the first year of the podcast. So we do appreciate all our listeners and it means a lot to us. So thank you very, very much um, for listening and continuing to, to listen to the the podcast, and we have lots more planned for the the coming weeks and months, and lots more ahead in this episode. I also want to give a shout out to Chloe Verst and Lisa Tolliver. Who Matt and I spoke to earlier this week. They are both undertaking the Leadership in Academic Advising Doctorate at K State. Um, so it was lovely to chat to them about the, the podcast and how it came about and how, how we've been working to, together on it. So uh, all the best for the uh, rest of the program. There are some absolutely incredible people lecturing and teaching on the doctoral program there. So I know you will be having a fantastic educational experience. And thanks again for taking the time to speak to Matt and I.
0: Awesome. So without further ado, let's dive into our interviews this episode. We have three wonderful interviews. First up is Leah Paganibon from University of Washington. I'm definitely biased when I say this, but Leah is the most phenomenal person you will ever meet. Leah was my mentor in the Merging Leaders program and is someone who loves advising, loves her work in advising, and is a dedicated member within Nakata and also a super fan of the podcast. So here we go with Leah's interview. <music> Up right now is one of the coolest people you could ever meet. This person is a returning guest, maybe. Well, maybe a guest interviewer, because if you go back to episode two of the podcast, she interviewed the awesome Ben Hopper. This is none other than Leah Paganibon, who is the assistant director of academic and student services for the University of Washington's Master of Science in Data Science. She has been an active NACADA member since 2008 and a former Region 8 chair. Leah holds a PhD in Educational Leadership and Policy Studies from the University of Washington. Her research interests include college student development, access and retention, theory and practice in student affairs, equity and diversity issues in higher education, and Asian Pacific Americans in higher education. Leah was recognized in 2013 as a winner of the Nakata Scholarship. In 2016, she received the University of Washington Association of Professional Academic Advisors and Counselors Association Advisor of the Year Award and Nakata's Outstanding Advisor Primary Advising Role Award. In 2017, Leah was Matt's, that's me, mentor in the Nakata Emerging Leaders Program, the 2017 to 2019 cohort. Leah lives in Seattle, Washington, where she enjoys being near both the ocean and the mountains. Some of her favorite activities include hiking, Aikido, reading, and yoga. She's an active volunteer with several local animal rescue organizations. Leo, welcome back to the
1: podcast.
2: Thank you. Great to talk to both of you.
1: Yeah, we're delighted to have you back on and have a, a proper chat. Uh, we were saying just be, before we started recording that you know it's it's a year since we all got to hang out together in Louisville, so it's nice that we're a year on. At least we're we're having a, an in depth conversation. So, Leah, I suppose one thing we um, usually start when we have guests on to chat to us is how they got involved in academic advising what their path into working in higher ed is it I suppose it helps to understand the story and, and it's good for listeners to um, to get that sense of you and how you came to work in the area. So if you could share uh, with us uh, what your journey was like.
2: Sure. so um, I graduated from Villanova University many years ago. Um, and I always knew I didn't want to do a year of service afterwards. So I actually did a year of AmeriCorps VISTA at Hartnell College, which is in the salad bowl of the world, Salinas, California. And I worked with community college students with a program called America Reads, where we matched community college students to be literacy tutors to elementary students. And then after that, I knew I wanted to get my master's and I wasn't sure really in what. And I started coursework for Applied Women's Studies. What I realized when I was looking at the course catalog uh, was that I was really interested, in addition to Women's Studies, a lot of the education courses. So I actually ended up getting a master's both in Applied Women's Studies and Education. And I did a couple of assistantships in different offices including career services. And I decided I really didn't wanna do career services but I liked the aspect of working with students one-on-one. Um, And I've always wanted to come to Seattle. And so I was exploring jobs in Seattle and I found a job at Pierce College, which is a two year college up here in the Seattle area, um, working with Running Start, which is with high school students who are taking dual degree credit. Um, And I really, really loved working with the students. um, And I just stayed in academic advising ever since then.
0: And now at University of Washington, uh, your current role is the Assistant Director of Academic and Student Services. Can you talk about what that role entails?
2: Sure. I actually just started that role in February. I've been at the University of Washington since 2007, and I started working with undergraduate students. um, And then I moved to a couple of different departments. So now I work primarily with um, evening graduate students in the data science program. So there's part-time and full-time. And I really support the students in their journey. Um, Obviously academic advising, I also support the faculty and curriculum development. It's a relatively new program, so I've helped create some new policies um, so that students are clear about what's expected of them and how to move forward for certain petitions. Uh, It's a really great group. It's a small program. and so I've noticed the previous program where i also worked with is new. I really enjoy working with new programs and helping them build up and create the infrastructure and foundation to help students succeed. So, yeah, it's been a really wonderful experience.
1: And Matt mentioned in the bio that you have been involved with NACADA since 2008. Um, I suppose it'd be interesting to hear how you came to be involved. How did you first become aware of, of NACADA? and what prompted you to to get involved with them?
2: So my first job at the University of Washington, I was working in um, what was then called the Gateway Center, is now called Undergraduate Academic Affairs Advising, which is the central advising unit for undergraduate students. And I had a Kyla, uh, I had a colleague, Mila um, who was the chair of uh, the large university interest group, which is no longer in existence. And she um, was leaving to have a baby. And so she asked if I could fill in for her at the Chicago conference in 2008. And I had no idea what Nakata was. Um, I'd never been to a Nakata event. I wasn't even a, a Nakata member. And so I was literally just thrown into it, leading a hot topic session, leading an interest group session. And I know that's not kind of the way it works anymore. But you know that was obviously several years ago. And what really struck me about that conference is that um, some of my colleagues at the time, Kurt Zeist and Clay Schwinn, and, but also just people I didn't even know um, reached out to help me, like David Spite, who was involved with the advising communities then. And they're like, it's okay. We know you're new. We know you're overwhelmed. We're going to help you. Let us know what you need. And it was just, um, it really wasn't a kind of family from my very first event. Um, and I really loved being involved with the advising community um, I ended up switching over to be more involved with the region. Um, Karen Sullivan Vance was the Region 8 chair at that time and reached out to me to get more involved. And I've just learned so much and grown and networked. And um, I just finished off my term as Region 8 chair. And uh, our new Region chair, Shay Ellingham, who's the first Region 8 chair from Canada, whom is super excited about. But I got a little emotional at our last meeting. Like it was just, it's been. Um, it's really been a family. So now I'm, I'm looking to explore other ways I can be involved in in NACADA, supporting the region still, but also kind of exploring some other opportunities. And the highlight of it all has been Matt's, being Matt's mentor for the Emerging Leaders Program. You know, I kind of wasn't sure whether I should be a mentor. And then we were paired and it was just, he's amazing. I enjoy working with him. He makes me a better person than advisor. Um, so anybody who's thinking of the Emerging Leaders Program, it's a wonderful opportunity for both mentees and mentors.
0: So here's a funny story. And and Leah and I, I, think it was maybe a few months ago, a year ago now. I don't know. Time just mixes all together. But we originally, I mean, officially we met in the Emerging Leaders Program 2017. But uh, in, in Leah's bio, and we know that she won in 2016 Was one of the winners of the um, Nakata's uh, Outstanding uh, Advisor Primary Advising Role Award, and there is a picture, a Gary Cunningham Group photo, where both of us are in that photo because uh, we both won awards at that uh, award ceremony, and we're literally like two feet apart. And we had, I we don't ever recall if we actually said <laughs> hi to one another or introduced uh, each other, but there is a photo of 2016 of us literally two feet apart, but officially we met in 2017. <laughs>
2: It was meant to be, Matt.
0: <laughs> but I do want to ask about because you were talking about ending your term as Region Eight chair. So can you talk about that experience, how it was, and you know, are there any takeaways from being a region chair?
2: Yeah, it's been wonderful, and obviously, it's been challenging as well. Um, especially this past year, you know, it was we really had to be creative about how to create community online for advisors and how to support advisors while also recognizing that advisors are um, exhausted and burnt out on Zoom. Um, I had, like the region eight steering committee is just amazing um, in every way. Um, and we had recently added a two-year college liaison and a couple of years before an inclusion and an engagement um, coordinator. Um, and all of them have really been amazing in supporting each other. Um, as well as really trying to think about ways that we can support um, people in Region 8. 8 really is great, as we say. Um, But in terms of personally, um, it really gave me the opportunity to really think about um, my leadership style, how to connect with people across the association. We did a collaboration with um, the um, Tribal Colleges and Universities Advising Community Group with Leander Yazzie really trying to think about how we can support region eight members while also really utilizing the network and the Nikata family. And so that was one example of, of how we did that. We, we tried to visit, we visited Northwest Indian College and Heritage University, but really trying to think about how we can connect with people and make them know that they matter. And we want their voices heard for region eight. The committee has really been working on, um, trying to be more inclusive of two-year college advisors and advisors from underrepresented populations. And that became highlighted even more this year, the importance of that work. So um, I learned a lot uh, about different institutions in Canada and the U S and I've also learned um, uh, how to lead a group of people who are very highly functional um, and, and using our, our resources in NACADA to to really try to create a stronger community, so it's been it's been wonderful.
1: Leah, we're recording this um, about a week on from the first Nakata virtual conference, and having been involved in since 2008 and, and having had that, um, you know, experience where, you, as you said, you're thrown into the, the deep end at, at your first uh, conference. How did you find the experience um, of attending the, the virtual conference? And we'll probably delve into um, the the presentations you were involved in. But overall, what was the experience like for you?
2: You know, I wasn't sure. I, I was going in with low expectations. I always think it's good to go in with low expectations and be pleasantly surprised as opposed to going in with high expectations. And I um, so wasn't really, you know, going I was kind of going in like, oh, we'll see what happens. And I was it was amazing. It It really was amazing. I really liked the virtual platform. I liked that there was an opportunity to engage with one another. I liked that there was networking sessions because that's such a huge component of a conference. So I really appreciated that that was there. Um, I appreciated that we have the recordings to watch for I think up to 45 days after the conference. I had participated in a couple of virtual conferences before and it was just one meeting after another meeting after another meeting. And it was just, it was incredibly difficult. And even in in-person meetings, I in-person conferences, I normally don't go session to session to session, right? Like I take little breaks, kind of reflect and process and network. Um, so I liked that the um, the EO did an amazing job. The conference planning committee did an amazing job in making sure that all those components were still present for people who wanted to take advantage of them live and then also could watch a lot of the sessions uh, later on. So um, yeah, and I also liked how the awards ceremony was available to everybody. I hope they do that in future years because not everybody can come and support um, their colleague or loved one. So I, I liked the fact that, that that was a way to support people who are winning an award um, that hasn't been a component of the award ceremony before. I also thought Laura Rendon was an amazing keynote speaker who talked about first generation students and Latinx students. And so um I had seen her speak before and so when i saw her name i was super excited and um it was a really moving presentation
0: yeah and we were talking to charlie um earlier today of course whenever these get posted on the podcast, it could be weeks apart, but he was mentioning how already like during the award ceremony, he was getting uh, contacts about how to apply for some of these awards and, you know, because people just found out about them. And so, yeah, it was like very, a lot of positives to holding that virtual um, award ceremony for everyone, whether they were registered or not. And then you're talking about uh, Laura Vendon and Charlie even mentioned about how, you know, because it was through uh, Zoom, It was like she was talking to everyone individually, like she was like right next to you having that conversation. And so it was very powerful to have this virtual conference with that with that keynote. Now, I'm sure you went to uh, attended a lot of whether it was a live session, semi live or on demand. Were there any that you attended that you found very interesting or found useful?
2: Yes. So there was one um, on the necessity of failure for academic success, the reconceptualization of failure. And it was by Sean Kramer Lazar. I hope I'm saying his name correctly from University of Arizona. Um, I really liked it. I know resiliency and failure is becoming um, a lot more common topic today. But he broke it down in a really nice way in terms of talking about different generations. So baby boomers, Gen X, millennials and Gen Z and how. They um, think about failure in different ways and how that affects how they move through life. He also supported it through a lot of research, which I always really appreciate. Um, So I love sessions where it's something that I kind of know about, but I learn something new that I can apply to my work. Um, And I had been familiar with some of the uh, at University of Washington. We have a panel about failure, like every year, some of our top. University of Washington administrators um, share their failure stories and engage with students. And so I thought this was a really nice way to kind of build on my knowledge of that topic um, and have some research um, that I can look into more further um, so I can think about how I can apply that to my work with students. Um, Your presentation, Matt, was amazing. Um, And I watched a couple of other ones later online, but I would say that's probably the one that sticks out the most to me.
1: And then, Leah, in terms of your your experience in in presenting, because you, you were involved in, in the conference, um, can you speak to us a, a little bit about that?
2: Sure. So I had the honor of um, being part of a panel on how to be an ally for uh, advisors of color and students of color um, with, Megumi, Makino Kanhiro, Ariel Collette, and Zorana Jones. And um, we had done different iterations of it in previous years, um, but we really changed it this year to be more focused on, you know, everything that's been happening in the past several months. Um, and um, it was a little difficult to try to, you know, it's such a, it's a, a deep topic to kind of cut it down into 30 minutes Um but it was great. We had a lot of great engagement. Um, there was a lot of people who had really great questions or emails, emailed us later with questions. Um, so it's good to have keep the conversation going uh, about these topics because they're they're very complex. Um, but I was really appreciative of the fact that people seem to really want to engage and learn more and, and think about their own identities, how the intersectionality of their own identities affects how they can support um, people of color. So it was, it was a, it was a great honor to share the panelists
3: being part of the session.
0: Yeah. And that's one of those things about uh, the virtual conference, you know, you know th- that they took into consideration, of course, you know, p- people sitting at a computer or laptop watching. Um, so they kind of had to restructure the timing of the presentations. I did like the fact that they had like that 15 minute window for the Q&A because during your panel, there was a lot of great questions that were asked. And I think what a lot of people appreciated, even myself, was that each of you as panelists talked about like your experiences and gave solid examples, but also examples that included, um, you know, yourselves that kind of really gave it a human element to it, uh, which I think really connected uh, with the audience. And there was another one that a panel wise that you were a part of, along with a few others, and that was the Global Issues in Academic Advising. That was an on demand session. I do recommend watching that one too. Uh, now, that one was, you actually had like a full hour, I think, for that one. Um, can you talk about a little bit about that uh, particular panel?
2: Yeah, so um, that panel was more focused on the global community and the globalization of advising. Um, in my previous position, I worked with the Global Innovation Exchange, which was a uh, supporting students in a dual degree program where they earned part of their degree from Tsinghua University in China and part of their degree from the University of Washington. Um, and, I, and the panel was also supposed to um, be presented at the Region 8 conference, which was canceled. Um, so the panelists and I, and there were several of us, but we talked about different issues regarding the globalization of advising. And again, we touched on, you know, due to COVID-19, I think everyone kind of realizes the commonalities um, and the challenges um, that advisors, whether you call them advisors or not, across the world are kind of facing. So it was a really nice chance to be able to dialogue about that, um, how Nakata and advising and advisors can work together to support one another um, during this challenging time. Um, But then also, like, what are some of the trends going forward um, or what are some of the work we can do going forward to support each other when things get back to normal as well? Yeah. So that was a, di- that was a different topic for me. It's not something I normally present on. So it was actually really great for me to learn a lot from the other presenters who have um, presented and research done more research on the globalization of advising. It was a, it was a great opportunity and just something to, to think about because it's continually evolving. And obviously NACADA is now the global advising community. Um and so I think really having presentations that show that is is important.
1: And Lee, I suppose in in terms of covid and and its impact, um, how is the the situation at the University of Washington at the moment?
2: Yeah, I have to say, you know Seattle was actually one of the first hot spots for Covid. Um it really kind of exploded here very early on. Compared to the rest of the nation um, in the U.S., and now I'm happy to say we have a really low rates. I think when I looked it up last, it was like 27 or 31 out of the large major cities in the United States. The University of Washington has had all remote classes except for classes like for our medical school students and dentistry students that really need to be in person. Um, the vast majority of them have been online. Um, and probably will continue to do so. We're on a quarter system um, for winter quarter as well. We do have some students in our dorms. There were some international students who weren't able to come to go home who stayed in the dorms throughout the you know, spring and summer. Um, there are some students in the in the dormitories now. Um, but. For the most part it's been on it's been online
0: and then washington recently had like the fires how's is everything good now in, in washington
2: yeah um we didn't have it as bad as california oregon but i would say there was a week there where i stayed inside and didn't open my windows or doors and got an air purifier and it was um kind of orange and yellow outside i'd lived in southern california kind of near where you are met years ago um, when there was fires down there and had to be evacuated so um this year is just um continual surprises so one thing <laughs> after another so i think it was hard because a lot of people in seattle it's you know get the reputation of having a lot of rain but this our summers here are the most the most amazing summers ever and a lot of people are out and about in nature and it's so green here um, and especially with COVID, I think a lot of people have been going out in nature just for their mental health, but it didn't last very long. And I'm, you know, just very appreciative that um, I'm safe. Everybody I know is safe. Um, and I know in, in Oregon and California, it was a lot worse. So um, just doing the best I can to get to get through it. But certainly hope that everybody in, in the other areas that were affected are doing OK.
1: And speaking of a year full of surprises, and Matt mentioned that the the, um, the volunteer work you, you do um, with animals in your bio, um, social media leads me to believe that you acquired yourself um, and a, a cat over the summer. Is that right?
2: That is true, which is so weird because I am a dog person through and through. Um, I got a pandemic pet, one of the many people who became a pandemic pet parent, <laughs> over the past several months um he was I was actually fostering him um and then uh I just kind of fell in love with him his name's Skoshi. um he's super little um but there's just something to be said about pets like they live in the present his biggest problems right now are if he sees like a dog out the window or I don't feed him exactly when he wants and so it's just really refreshing um when you're dealing with all of this stuff happening in the world to have uh, a pet that just loves you no matter what, greets you when you get home. And um, I know a lot of people have shared that with me too, who have either gotten pets or had have had pets all this time. Like, um, it's really just nice to have a little being that cuddles up next to you and just wants to be next to you and doesn't know any of the else what's going on in the world. So yes, I love him very, very much. Thank you for asking.
0: I think secretly... People that say they're dog lovers really are cat lovers.
2: Really?
0: Even though a lot of times, I think so. They—they they, here's the thing: so you'll have people that say I'm an animal lover, and then they have a dog, and they're like, "Oh, do you like cats?" Are like, "Oh, I hate cats." And you're like, "No." So then you're not an animal lover; you're a dog lover. <laughs> yeah. But I think people who who say they don't like cats, they, they they like them. I think there's there's a small part in their heart where they like cats. Now, you do a lot of volunteer work. I've done volunteer work at local animal rescue organizations. <laughs> What kind of volunteer work have you done? Because I think for some people, their only experience thinking about it is seeing um, animal rescue commercials with Sarah McLaughlin music playing. <laughs>
2: um, it's changed throughout the years. Now that I have Scotia, I actually, um, there's a pet food bank. So a lot of people who have lost their jobs um, or been furloughed, can't afford to get food for their animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's been a lot of donations from different pet stores and individual people, and so I participate in um, d- uh, delivering for people who can't, who are who are not mobile. So delivering food to people um, who need pet food, or we also have a centralized location where we distribute pet food to people who need it, and no questions asked. You don't need to provide any proof of why you need it. Like you just say what kind of food you need, and you get it. So that's been really wonderful. Before. Um, before that, before I had Scoshi, um, I fostered quite a bit. Um, so I always say there's no bad there's no bad animals. There's just uh, people who you know train their animals or make animals bad. Um, and so a lot of it is making animals more adoptable. so socializing them, um, or if they have physical ailments, you know, keeping them until they're physically able. Um, Just showing them some love. A lot of them have had a really tough life. You know, you never know. A lot of them are strays or given up by people who can't afford them anymore or have passed. And so um, it's actually been a really great joy. My my greatest success story is I had a pit bull who was a fighting pit bull um, who was in her fighting ring. Um, and everybody, when I got her, was like, I can't believe you took this pit bull and would cross the street so they wouldn't be near me and was really afraid of her. And she was the sweetest, sweetest thing. I mean, she was scary looking, but she was the sweetest thing. And I got her to be a lot more confident in herself and be able to interact with people and other animals. And she was adopted by somebody whose um, pit bull had actually just passed recently. And I, that was the only one. I try to keep a distance. A lot of people don't like to foster. because, like, how do you give them away? That was the only one that I really cried, just because mm-hmm. it was just um, she was amazing and had been treated really poorly and and now has a loving home. So, get your pets spayed and neuter if you have pets, or if you want to adopt a adopt a pet right now, there are lots in the rescues. Um, I know a lot of people for different reasons go to breeders, and that's totally fine. But there are a lot of great dogs in, in animal rescues and shelters.
1: Yeah, I, and a fair play to you for for the work you're doing in fostering. And it's really lovely to hear that story about the pit bull and the fact that um she now has a a forever home. Um, Leah, one of the things that that struck me when Matt was reading your bio was that you enjoy hiking because that's something that um I'm uh, too. I'm a big fan of, and and maybe we can get in the cata hiking group uh, together. But um. In, in terms of uh, fa- favorite lo- favorite locations or destinations to hike?
2: Oh, goodness. There are so many. Callum, you have to come out to Seattle. There are so many wonderful trails out here. Actually, the annual conference is going to be in Portland in a couple of years. So we should go hiking then. Um, in terms of the Seattle area, um, I tend I like to go to ones that are really challenging but not overpopulated. Um, and I used to have a dog that didn't really um, like people. So I, I kind of made it my my point to try to find some of those. Um, but that's the great thing about Seattle is that you're right by like mountains and ocean. You're right by the ocean, but there's tons of places places to hike around here. Um, and there's also a lot of national forests around here. So for, the, for those of you who are familiar with Seattle, I like to go to Poo Poo Point where there's a lot of hang gliders that kind of jump off and do their hand gliding thing there um, and Rattlesnake Ledge, Snow Lake, um, so many, so many. options. So.
0: so we're talking about Seattle. You mentioned Portland for the conference in a couple of years. What's the deal with the whole Seattle versus Portland rivalry?
2: You know, I, I'm a bad person to ask because I don't really feel like I grew up in upstate New York and I moved here, and then I lived in, you know, the LA area and California a well, while, and then I moved up here, uh, in 2004, um, because I'll have some colleagues of mine, um, who live in Oregon or used to live in Oregon, like, text me after, like, Nakata conferences about, like, football games with the University of Oregon and University of Washington, and, um, so I get it that there's a sports rivalry there, um, but I don't really feel it. I like Portland a lot. I, <laughs> I think it's a good City? I don't
0: even know if it's a sports driver. I yes. think it's like a city versus city thing.
2: City rivalry? I don't know. I have I have no ill will towards Portland.
0: <laughs> a few years ago we visited Portland and you know, whether it was the Uber driver or someone like or went on a tour, they would throw little jabs in uh to Seattle and then when we went to go visit Seattle, people would throw jabs to Portland. So I don't know if it's just I just assumed there was something going there
2: on. There might be and I just don't know. That.
0: I like both, I like both cities. They're both, they're both beautiful, um, great places to hike and um, great food. So I, I have no ill will. Okay. I like both.
2: I honestly, I go to Vancouver, um, British Columbia more than I do Portland. Uh, so mm-hmm. despite the fact that it's only a few hours away, I haven't gone that often.
1: Now, uh, as we said earlier on, on episode two, you uh, guest starred, you interviewed, uh, ben and uh, I suppose um, did you did you enjoy being on that side of the microphone? Is that something we could uh, convince you to to do again?
2: Anything I can do with the two of you, I'm I'm in. Like I just love the two of you so much. You guys are great and have a lot of positive energy. So yes, I much more enjoy being the one asking questions than than answering the questions.
0: Literally, like we were about to go record with Ben and and you were there, and it was just hey, do you want to interview Ben? I was like, okay, sure. That was awesome. So I think, uh, let's say Cincinnati 2021 will have a trio.
2: Count me in. And I also <laughs> love Ben, so I knew he would be great to interview. So
0: Now um, we talked about hiking. Um, you also do Aikido. How long have you been doing that?
2: Been doing Aikido, um, which is a martial arts for those of you who aren't sure. It's focused a lot of, uh, about mind, body, and spirit connection. Oh, gosh, how long have I been doing that? Uh, About five years five or six years, you know, it's really been helpful during COVID Um, It's not the same as Tai Chi I've done Tai Chi in the past but a lot the whole thing about Aikido is um, No competition and there's no uh, real attacks. It's about taking someone's energy and redirecting it so that both you and that other person is safe Um, and so a lot of the Aikido philosophies um, about peace and harmony and balance have really been helpful to me, um, the past several months. Um, and we still, I've been practicing via zoom, which is obviously very different, but sometimes it's amazing. You can still feel people's energies. I don't know if you feel this way in zoom meetings. You can still feel people's energies through the screen a lot. Um, and so it's been interesting to kind of be creative about my own practice with, we always say there's Aikido on the mat and there's Aikido off the mat. There's Aikido on the mat where you're doing the techniques, obviously, if you are ever attacked. And there's the Aikido off the mat of how to hold yourself in, in, with compassion and grace and also doing that for others. And I think that's been been really helpful.
1: Yeah. One of the things I suppose when I was doing some research for for this was um, I noticed that you had done some work in study abroad at one point. And um, given that um, that's partly my background as well, um, I was wondering if um, you could tell us a a little bit more about that.
2: Sure. So um, I was the coordinator for the National Student Exchange, which was actually a domestic exchange program within the U.S. a couple of years. And then I have led, um, co-led two study abroad trips to the Philippines. So I identify as as, uh, Filipino American. And so I led two trips over to the Philippines. And it's been honestly one of the most amazing experiences. Some of the students had never left Washington State, let alone the country. And to go to a country which is, um, has a lot of very contrasted, um, really wealthy communities next to really um, poor communities. And for students to see that for the first time, we also had a lot of students who were mixed race of various underrepresented populations and also students who were Filipino American who either had never been to the Philippines or had left the Philippines when they were very young and really thinking about their own ethnic identity. Like they're not really Filipino, they're not really American. Where do they fit in? What cultures? What p- aspects of the different cultures make up who they are? What they want to be? It was. It's. Um, it's an amazingly warm, uh, like warm-hearted, in addition to warm climate uh, country. But that also is facing some significant challenges. And so, um, as you probably know, column. I mean, the things that students and yourself learn from studying abroad is just is just amazing. And so it was. It was an honor for me to be part of these students' journeys and learning more about them, their own selves um, and to be coming from a country that actually colonized the country that they're in. Right. So the U.S. came and colonized the Philippines. and Now they identify as American and they identify as Filipino. And, you know, it's just it's, it's complex and it's complex and beautiful in, in the same way in terms of students' journeys with it. I don't know if I articulated that clearly, but. Yeah.
0: Now, you know, you were talking about at the virtual conference doing the panel on the uh, being an ally for students, uh, students and advisors of color. Now, this has been a a year of reflection, a year of just things revolving around race, diversity, inclusion, equity. Earlier in the year, you did a panel on a webinar panel panel on xenophobia and anti Asian racism. Was this something that was already planned or did this come out of everything that's been going on in 2020 and prior to that?
2: So um, the xenophobia and anti-Asian panel um, was in response to there was a high rate of anti-Asian hate crime across the United States. And I don't know if internationally, um, which um, was exacerbated by COVID-19 being called um the Chinese virus. And so I had reached out to the executive office and said, you know, I really think this is important. Is there something we could do? Like, could I do something? And they were really supportive. And it was really an opportunity. I didn't want to do it myself, because I don't feel like I'm an expert on on anything, especially in this topic. And so it was really timely. Um, it was, it was um, pretty early on, I want to say maybe February or March, that we decided to put it together. And I think finally got it together in May or June. Um, but I appreciated Nikata supporting the fact that we really felt it was important and it kind of let us, you know, take the lead and just supported us in any way that we needed to.
1: Leah, I'm um, going to embarrass you a little bit here because when you, uh, you know, Google your name, a, a number of glowing recommendations um, come up and um like Matt, Matt has rightly sung your your praises in the past. Charlie has, and and, and others have. But just for for listeners, um, Noelle Bernard Kingsley. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Said, uh, Leah embodies many of the qualities that represent her profession. She is kind, patient, and a great listener. She's genuinely interested in those around her. She is a passionate advocate for students. She believes in the value of higher education and works tirelessly towards creating accessibility. And I could go on. She says a, a number of other things. I think all of those qualities are so evident in the work that you do, in, in how you conduct everything you do, how you approach. Um, all your projects, and that has really shone through in this interview. And you said earlier that, you know, you're, you're looking for new ways that you can continue to engage with NACADA and especially in um, other leadership roles. And I certainly hope that you will do that because I think you bring so much to your institution and to NACADA as an organization. So um, thanks for all that you do. And thank you for taking the time to speak to Matt and myself today.
2: Thank you, Column. It's been I I love both of you. So it's just it's it's been an honor just to be able to talk to you and share my experiences. and And shout out to Noelle. Noelle's uh, been a great advisor and mentor to me for years and years. And she does a great job of of, of promoting other advisors and making sure they're seen and heard. So thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you so much, Leah, for joining us on the podcast. Truly appreciate it. I always appreciate your passion and dedication within academic advising, as well as your mentorship and friendship. Column, who's
1: next? Coming up is an interview with former NACADA President Karen Arshambow. She served as president just a couple of years ago. And I had spoken to Karen at the Louisville conference in 2019 and similarly to Matt's interview with Ryan in in the last episode, we thought it would be great to catch up with Karen a year on and have maybe a more in-depth discussion with her and find out how the, the year has been for her after she had completed her term as president. So I really enjoyed chatting to Karen and I think and hope that you will enjoy this interview. Welcome back to the podcast.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Delighted to get the opportunity to chat to you again. And uh, I was saying to you just before we started recording that I Interviewed you at the Louisville conference, and Matt had been talking to Ryan Shekel and those were two of the the bedrock interviews that we built the podcast on. So a year on, uh, we, I, I thought, you know, why, why not follow up and see how things have been? And I know Matt has been chatting to, to Ryan. So it really is good to get the opportunity to talk to you and maybe have more time to to delve into to topics uh, because uh, certainly you were quite busy in Louisville. You had a, a lot of uh, duties at that stage, but we have a little bit more time today. I suppose one of the things that might be interesting, and as I said to you, you are well known in advising circles and, and NASPA circles. But for those who maybe aren't as familiar with you or your others who might know you but might not know your path into higher ed, why was maybe you could talk me through your journey a little bit?
4: Sure. So um, I I was not supposed to be in higher ed as a career. That was that was not my plan. Um my plan from the time I was in sixth grade until I was in college was that I was going to be an attorney. And um, when I was in college, I figured out pretty quickly that um, I was never going to be able to afford to pay off the loans that it would cost if I went into the kind of law that I was actually interested in. I had always been interested in civil rights law. And um, so I, I took a turn and for some reason I thought the the money would be better I don't know what I was thinking, um, going a professorial route. And so I uh, got both my undergraduate and my master's degree in history. And I started a doctoral program in history. And about a year into my doctoral program, I figured out that that was not where I wanted to be. I didn't want to be um, in archives. I didn't want to be spending my time with uh, with books and and Uh, research material as opposed to with people. And I went to a professor um, and I was basically saying goodbye to him. He said, yes, I I heard that you're leaving the program. And I was, I was a year in, I had done very well, but I just was not, it didn't make sense to stay. And I, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I honestly have no idea. I said, and if I don't figure it out over the summer, you might see me back here in the fall. But right now, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. And he had been the faculty member for my teaching history class. So it was one of the few doctoral programs where you actually had a course in how to teach. And he said, you know, you're, you're really good at working with college students. So if you can figure out how to make a career out of that, that would be a really good thing for you. And having no other guidance, I figured, okay, sounds good. And so I applied for every job on the East Coast um, that had anything to do with college students or with students who were almost college age. So those who were getting ready for college. And I ended up in an admissions office at a very small Catholic women's college in DC. Um, it was then Trinity college. It's now Trinity, Washington university. And I started as an admissions counselor. Um, the admissions counselor role specifically that I had was working with transfer students. And for folks who are in admissions, um, you know, you, you usually have these very large numbers of students who you're supposed to recruit. But I was responsible for 50 students. I had to bring in 50 transfer students a year. And because the number was so small, um, I got to know these students really, really well. And I served as not only their admissions counselor, but also their resource for the entire institution. And I served as their advisor. And I had a phenomenal dean of students who oversaw the advising work at the institution. And she said, you don't know this, but you're doing advising. I'm I'm doing admissions work. And she said, no, 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 you don't know it, but you're doing advising. You're these students' first advisor. You're the first advisor that they see. And I want you to join my advising council. And so I joined the advising council, continuing in the role as an admissions counselor. And in that role, um, I started asking questions about why it was that our transfer students didn't have the same opportunities that our first year students did, namely that our first year students had a first year seminar. Our transfer students did not. Um, And I said to my dean of students, why don't they have one? And she said, because no one's teaching it. You've taught before. Why don't you go do that? And so I I built my first uh, transfer seminar. I um, did not have the opportunity at that institution to move into a role that was purely an advising role. And so I changed institutions. And I then um, pretty quickly moved through a number of different roles that had advising as the core, um, but very quickly was in a broader Sense. And I I basically kind of made my mark in higher ed by working with small populations on large amounts of stuff. So when I, I left my first, um, my first institution where I was truly doing advising, I went to an institution where it was a, um, the program I was working with was a transfer completion program. So every single one of my students was a community college graduate. Every single one of my students was a junior looking to come into the institution. And every single one of my students had a single administrator Who they would work with for the two years of their program to get to graduation. And I was that administrator. So I recruited every one of them. I did their initial advising. I ran their orientation. Um, I ran their common book program. I helped with faculty development because I had 150 students. And when you have a really small group of students, you can do a lot of things with them. And I saw those students from their initial interest in the institution until the day that they graduated, they picked their caps and gowns up in my office. And when they walked across the stage, I was the first person they saw when they came off. And I was the first person they hugged back in the days when we could hug people. And so when I moved from there, that was all in the Maryland and D.C. area. And then um, I I probably never would have left that job because those 150 students were my babies. And I, I'm still in touch with quite a number of them because they are just that that was a community. And it was very much the things that advisors love about working with students. It was the students who you can truly see their growth and you can see their development. Um, and I, I didn't really have a choice. I, I moved back to New Jersey for family reasons. Um, and I tried to, to be a bit introspective about the, the kinds of students I wanted to work with. And that was when I landed at the, my first community college. That was. Uh, back in 2005 so 15 years ago now um, I landed at my first community college and I got a position as a director of student services for a um, for the the locations that this community college had away from its from its main campus. So it had a main campus and uh, five locations around its county. And I was responsible for the delivery of services at all five of those locations. So again, smaller population, bigger responsibilities. Um, and then I, I had a, a a, an opportunity to uh, to go to a big four year institution, which is kind of what I thought I had always wanted. I always saw myself as, well, you'll go back to the residential experience that you had as an undergrad. You'll go back to that um, that opportunity to um, to see students, you know, sort of twenty four seven and all of that. And I went to Drexel University um, for about a year and a half. And quite honestly, the the best thing that happened both at Drexel, and this is going to sound a little weird, but the best thing that happened at Drexel and one of the best things that happened for me as a professional in my career is that I got laid off. Um, In June of 2015, my daughter was two months old um, and I, along with about three dozen other people at Drexel, um, three dozen other relatively high level people, I got laid off and I had to really rethink what I was doing and why I was doing it and why I was in higher ed and and all of those things. And at that point, I landed at Rowan College at Burlington County, where I currently am. Um, RCBC is what we affectionately call it, um, as the dean of enrollment management. And it was um, the result. My position was the result of a reorganization. And I had the opportunity to really dive in to the work that I had always loved, which was working with students who needed help. Um, You know, the the students at Drexel are high achievers. They are um, they they it's a very expensive school, so they tend to have a bit more in the line of resources, many of them. Um, And so I was able to return out of what felt like a moment of crisis I was able to return to to sort of my my roots of working with students who really need support. Um, And I've now been here for five years. I was promoted into my current position in September of 2018. Um, And so I now oversee the area that I was in as, as dean of enrollment management, as well as the student success side of our house. Um, When I came into the enrollment management position, I actually didn't oversee advising proper, um, but I oversaw a few of our small retention and advising programs, including our opportunity program, our honors um, advising program, but didn't oversee the actual advising department. And now in my role as vice president, I I now oversee most, if not all, uh, probably one or two little areas of um, student services that I don't oversee, but um, oversee the rest of the student experience outside of the classroom.
3: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
4: Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast.
1: And that is exactly why we asked that question at the beginning, because (laughs) it's fascinating to hear the different reasons why people get into higher ed, get into advising, the twists and turns on their journey, the people who supported you along the way. I mean, that that doctoral supervisor, as you're walking out the door, says you're really good at working with students. And that plants a seed for you, you know, because it, it resonates. And then the dean you had at, at Trinity who says you're an, you're an advisor, this mm-hmm. is what you do. So I, I think that's really interesting. And, and thanks for taking the time to, to walk us through that. Absolutely. Now, clearly you're passionate about advising. I mean, that shines through even in the answer you, you've given. So I'm interested then, how did NACADA come on your radar? When when did that happen?
4: So um, back in 2002, I uh, went to my first region conference. I was in grad school at the time. I, I was getting my second master's in counseling with an emphasis on student development and higher ed at Trinity. Um, and I uh, Went to a regional conference because it was located relatively close to it was lo, it was being held in Maryland. Um, it was being held in Ocean City, Maryland, which is right near where I went to college. Um, so I had the you know sort of go back home to college and go to this conference. Um, I hated it. I, I absolutely hated it. I um, I'm an introvert by nature and I walked in the room and I felt like everybody knew each other. And here I was this, you know, new person, relatively new to the field, had no idea what I was doing um, and felt like an outsider and really struggled with that. And um, I left and I didn't come back. I remained a member um, because I figured I would use the resources and I would use what I wanted to get out of it, um, but did not in any way, shape or form want to engage then I moved back to New Jersey, and um, I, I needed to connect with people and with resources and with stuff. And um, one of the ways that I did that was that I volunteered, and I volunteered to uh, be a to be involved in the regional conference when it was held in um, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Susan Fred was the chair of that conference. And she and I got on the phone pretty much the day that I submitted my yell help with the conference. She gave me a call and she and I just started talking and I was like, oh, okay." So the problem at the conference was not that these people all knew each other and excluded me, but that I didn't really open myself up to being to, to meeting anybody, to talk to anybody. I am the person who will make one-on-one connections really well. Um, but I don't really like to be in the group of 50. And so the, the personal connection with Susan, and then I, I continued to feel that need to connect. And I volunteered for the annual conference, which was held in Baltimore in 2007. And again, it sort of was like, oh, okay. I'm I'm getting involved with this group of people, um, and that was uh, Karen Lewis was on that committee. Karen and I had known each other by that point for five years. We had worked together previously, um, but a number of other people as well. Where it felt like a group of people of common purpose, and um, I am I am a very purpose driven kind of individual, and so um, I I'm not. I'm not great with small talk. I'm great with, we have a common purpose and we can move each other forward. And then small talk and getting to know each other comes second. Um, And so I had this common purpose with this group of people who were putting on this, what would be an amazing conference in Baltimore. And really from that, I got to see what the EO did. I got to see what the, um, you know, I got to know Rhonda Baker through that opportunity um, and got to really see how things worked from a a bit of a little look at the inside, even though I didn't really understand the outside yet. Um, And so from, from there, I started presenting. I, you know, I presented my dissertation research at San Antonio in 2009. Um, And then in 2010, a week before um, I actually went to, when I went to the the transfer students uh, then commission meeting in 2009, um, they mentioned that they, that they, there would be an election for a new chair. And I sort of had this, oh, well, I won't win anyway. So I'll throw my name in the hat because, hey, why not? I can say I ran and that'll that'll work. And then I ran out of post. And so so I landed in that position. And um, a week before I defended my dissertation in 2010, I took on my first elected position at Nakata. Um, at the 2010 conference. And um, that was in Orlando. And again, I met these amazing people. And it was, um, I I think that there's what has always run true for me. And I I think I said this, I referenced this in my interview with you last year, that it's always the people who bring me back that even though um, I could very easily make the argument now that I don't work directly with students for their advising needs. I don't. Um, I don't do advising work on a day-to-day basis. I could very easily make the argument that I no longer belong, for lack of a better word, in Nakata. Um, but I've always found that it's the people that bring me back, and the people that um, that I use as resources. They are my friends. They're my family. Um, you know when when I. I spoke last week or two weeks ago, whenever the conference was at this point um, for the, the Leading Light Award. Um, I had a really hard when we rehearsed. I didn't read my last paragraph of my my uh, my my speech. And the reason I didn't read my last paragraph was because I spoke about the people in Nakata and I knew I couldn't make it through it. And I knew I could only do it once. And they were in that paragraph with my parents and with my daughter, and that's how critical the Nakata people are to me. They are my touchstones. They are um, they're my family, and that's really, I think, what um, to go from eighteen years ago saying I hated this experience and I, uh, you know, I was ready to say never again to an experience where I can't imagine not having Nakata in my life is it was is just a dramatic. Sort of shift for me.
3: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah. And I, it's it's really interesting. I I, 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 I We had discussed some, some of that before. And I think, though, for listeners who are hearing it for the first time, it's to hear that, you know, on any level, because it can happen with an organization, it can happen with a person. Sometimes it just doesn't click the first time. And there can be any number of reasons for that. But look what, look what happened. And <laughs> I think it the common purpose, as you said, is so important. Mm-hmm. And I think that is is the the glue that, that holds Nakata together, because essentially everybody is focused on the students and the student welfare, student success, and improving the, the student experience. And so it doesn't matter whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, what your background, whether you're a community college, whether in, you're in this giant institution, or what exactly your role is within that, everybody works together to, to endeavor to to, to improve and, and that's certainly what i have found um in the association now you went, you went from as i said not enjoying that first experience mm-hmm. finding the common purpose and then leading the organization <laughs> so uh, when we when we spoke last year as i said you had I, I don't even know if officially aaron had had taken over or aaron justina had taken over as president at that point or or whether um, she had, whether it was still in transition, but I suppose we are now, you know, as said, a year on from that. Reflecting back on your year as NACADA president, can you talk to me about that experience?
4: Sure. Um, I think at that point, because we were still at the conference, technically I was still president because the, you know, the, the way the terms run, you're, you're president until that, that official closing, uh, I don't know if it's a closing gavel exactly, but uh, the closing gavel of the conference—it's it's your conference, and um, I think the the first thing that I can can absolutely say, reflecting not only on that presidency but also on the year that followed, is that um, I'm much more thankful for the year that I had than I think I was at the end of that year because I look at the year that Aaron has had and the um, the challenges of being president in a year when everything is upturned, um, is something that I, I do not envy her at all. Um, the, you know, the, I am, I am thankful that I could look on it as, um, as an observer and a support rather than as the person who needed to be the, the face of the organization at that time. Um, but I think I'm also much more appreciative of the year as president, as a whole, than I was at the time. And I think that happens when when you put your heart and soul into something and you put a lot of work into something. Um, I, I think the, the amount of time and effort and work that you put into something, even really good work, has that level of exhaustion to it. And um, that that can't be underestimated when you're, you know, when you're asking for how are things feeling and you just feel like I just, I, I'm just tired. Like I remember saying that to you. I'm just tired. Like that's, that's how I feel. How I feel is tired. And I think even though, um, you know, 2020 has been what it is, I think I'm much more aware of how much good work was done in that year. Um, and I am particularly proud of seeing the things that have come out from the work group from the from the race, ethnicity and inclusion work group, um, because that was a, a labor of love for me. And really working through the details of what it would look like um, that that began at the conference when I began as president, you know, that that be, that took a year. And it was a year of conversation with the board. And it was a year of, you know, I I first had the conceptual idea of we need something dedicated in October of 2019, or I'm sorry, 2018. And worked through a almost a full year of meetings of all of this to get to the point where we could say to the association as a whole, here's where we are. And here's what we think, here's what we think this looks like. Um, And then the process of determining who would chairs be and who would be on the committee and, and all of those things. Um, I, I I'm so incredibly proud of where Loxley and uh, Jess have taken it so far. And, and for what I see as really significant, um, significant contributions in a really short period of time, because they have been able to launch some training. They've been able to launch uh, readings. They've been able to um, to form subcommittees about structural change. And I think those are the things that are so hard to get to. And, you know, if there's, if, if all I did was opened a door and said it's okay for everybody to go through this door, they knocked down the wall that the door was in and did it with just style and grace and um, and, and did it in a way that is really where the institution, the association needs to be headed. And so um, I'm able to be much now that they are so well underway and it's so, you know, it's so significant, um, I'm able to be much more reflective. And I think especially given where the United States has been in this past six months, And with the turmoil of the past six months, I am very grateful that we got that launched ahead um, because it was a way in which the association was not reactive. The association was already headed down that path um, rather than what we see sometimes in our institutions where there's a, a flare up of something happening and the institution says, oh, now we have to admit that the race is an issue. Now we have to admit that we have challenges with um, negotiating race and ethnicity. And I think as an association, we, we got ahead of that curve, um, at least a little bit, not, not to say that we got ahead of it before there was an issue or we wouldn't have you know, known there was an issue. Um, but I, I'm just incredibly proud of Loxley and, and Jessica and really that whole committee for taking something that was conceptual. Because I, you know, really I, I gave them like a page. It was like, here's a concept. Good luck. And so, um, a year on, I can very, I can be very proud of where that's landed. Um, and do it in a way where it's not on the basis of exhaustion, <laughs> where it's on the basis of of really, you know, pride in the work instead of it being on the basis of um, wow, I'm glad we got that done because I need a nap. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, and and look, it is a testament to your work and. Um, we're recording this on on Monday, the nineteenth of October. So, episode twenty one of Adventures of I just came out. Um, I can't imagine you've had the opportunity to to listen to it because we're this is early in the morning for you. But Charlie, we we talked to Charlie not on that episode, and he pays tribute to to your work on that, and, and to Aaron for um turning the the task force into a work group to continue it, but mm-hmm. also to Loxley and to Jessica and and the tremendous work that. They have done, but I think one of the things that I really like it in Nakata is that the the leadership seem when there is a concept, they're they're willing to hand it off to those who you know can take it forward. So I see that with Charlie, I see that with you as president, I see that with with various all you know so many of the advising communities also and different people within Nakata. It's you know you came up with an idea, whether that was for the task force that, that you put together or whether it was Charlie's idea of we should have an international conference. And mm-hmm. then he, ha- he hands it off to the, those who are international within the mm-hmm. association to make it happen because they're better placed to to do so. And I, I, I just think, yeah, hopefully, um, you know, we can continue to, to build on that. And I know we talked to Cecilia as well, and um, she was absolutely fantastic um, to, to interview and, and her ideas. And I know she's going to carry a, a lot forward as well. And Nakata's willingness to accept that, you know, there are problems and issues and, and we need to, to listen to our members. And, you know, we don't have all the solutions. We don't have them right now, but we can work to, towards them. But I suppose, are there... Look, looking back on on the year, and yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, the, the recognition that a year on, like you, you could you put you poured your heart and soul on into it. It was understandable that you were exhausted. Are there are there le- other learnings that you have taken from that year, Karen?
4: Um, yeah. I mean, I think the, I think one of the things that I, um, I think I've always known, but maybe got. Clarified and made sense of in in that group is uh, in that year rather is that the um, people can disagree with you, and the listening to disagreement and the 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 value placed in disagreement can help to move a concept forward. And I'm not saying a disagreement with the concept, but I'm saying that, you know, you've, you've got the concept and then you've got the, how do you make it real? And I, I think there's, you know, the, the board was wonderfully supportive of the concept, but there's you know nine people and nine different ideas of how do you present it? And how do you lead it? And where does it sit in the organization? And what does it mean? And What does it mean globally when you're talking about something that is a very, um, I don't want to say definitively American problem, but a certainly a a, it's a um, it's a different problem in the United States than it is elsewhere around the world. And how do you make sense of that? And I think um, one of the things that I really had clarified in that year is the way that that disagreement or that that difference of opinion helps to make a concept stronger. And moves it from, you know, if I had written the here's the task force in October of 2018, which I could I could have done because a task force as written is the purview of the president alone. So I could have very easily written that in October of 18 and said, here's the task force. Here are the people I want in charge of it and go forward and, and do this. Um but we opted not to do it that way. And I, I said to the board at the time, um, you know, essentially, I don't, I don't need your consent, but I want to get us there. I want to get us to where there's, there's consent from the board, um, to move this forward and support from the board, not even just consent, but support from the board to move it forward. And I think what I, um, what I gained from that was the ability to, to see how a concept gets better fleshed out with divergent voices. And I think sometimes, not only in Nakata, but everywhere, um, it's sometimes easier to sort of fall in line with, oh, well, this seems to be what everybody thinks. So it's easier if I just go along with. Um, But when when you're going to say that there's a problem, the more different ways that you look at that problem the stronger your argument is. Because the it becomes a stronger way of looking at how do we solve a problem? If we, if we don't even understand what the problem is, we can't solve it. And so those conversations with the board over the course of that year um, helped to clarify my vision in a way that I could not have possibly done on my own. Um, and I think that and and the other thing i'll say is the need for us to still move forward with all the other work of the association um you know the the board is is intended to be strategic in its thinking it's intended to be big picture um and so it can't be singularly focused it can't say here's our here's our idea for the year and we're just going to talk about that and so the um i think that that I'm, I am better in my daily work um, and in my work as a vice president, where I, again, need to have that, that big picture view. I am better at that because of the year that I served as Nakata president, um, because I had to see the full picture. I couldn't, um, I had to think through how do the different constituencies hear what I'm saying? Um, And so now when I go in front of my campus, as I will actually this coming Friday, and I present something to the campus community that ranges from, you know, my team in the advisors and financial aid professionals and registration folks and all of that, to the faculty, to the janitors, to the tech people, to, you know, everybody who has a role on campus, and I speak to that group, I think I do so more effectively because i i had that experience within the nakata presidency of saying okay so what are all, what are all of the different viewpoints that people are coming to this with who are the constituencies if you don't know who your constituencies are then how do you how do you speak to them um and I, and i i will say i'm i'm thankful that i had that experience in nakata because it has made me better at my current job um i wish i was more skilled in that before i went into the presidency so that it would have been less of a learning curve for me when I, when I went into the, um, into that role for the association.
1: Yeah, no, I I think you, that's a a really interesting and insightful and reflective response. Uh, You know, I think uh, you can see that there's so much thought and effort into what you do and that intentionality um and cu- coupled with the you know the the purpose um is, is the reason i think you've you've achieved what you have now you you gave us a a, a a little nugget of information earlier in terms of when you were receiving the the leading light and and that you you know you were only able to to go through that you didn't wanted to do the paragraph live because you only wanted to read it once, but I suppose uh, you know I, I think one of the great things around the the conference was the fact that for. The award ceremony in particular was open to everyone, and you know I, so many people said, "Oh, you know new people to the association said, oh I didn't know that was you know there was there was even an award ceremony and um they're getting involved. I'm interested in in hearing from from your perspective as somebody who has attended previous conferences, what was your experience of the virtual conference this year
4: um well, I mean, I'll say from a from a very personal standpoint, um, you know, my, my parents got to hear what I said um, and I, I'm Not, I was not, I don't know if you heard my, my speech, but I referenced the fact that my parents are probably the only parents who have been to a Nakata book signing. And they, they actually were. They happened to, uh, their, their vacation to Las Vegas happened to overlap with the Vegas conference. And um, they showed up at seven o'clock in the morning when we were doing the book signing in the, the hallway of, of Caesar's Palace in Vegas. Um, But I have the most wonderfully supportive parents in the world. And, um, the fact that they could hear my acceptance, which they would not have been able to done, had to do, had I be, uh, had it been held in Puerto Rico was certainly, um, that, that held a lot of meaning for me personally. Um, I, I I will say I, I missed the, the, the real life conference terribly. It's, um, it's, it's always such a time of rejuvenation for me, um, So I, I, I can't say, oh, it was just as good or, oh, it was even better. I just, I, you know, I, I can't emotionally feel that way because there's, you know, that personal connection that I feel to the face-to-face conference. But, um, I, I do think the, the way that people were able to experience the award ceremony in particular, um, and the, the fact that people were able to immediately say, oh, it was so great to see you there. And it was so good to see this. And, you know, and really to focus on the award winners in a way that I think sometimes, even when you're present, gets lost. Because you're present, but you're sitting with people and you, you know, you have the side chat and you have the, you know, and you miss something. You miss somebody's name, you miss whatever. And so being able to to see my friends and colleagues and um, and people who I only know by name, and being able to to see them there was fantastic. Um, I, I sort of have a, a vision for the future that includes both a live cast and a face to face, just to you know to to make everybody happy. Um, but I think there were definitely positive sides to um, to being able to have people who couldn't physically be, especially because it was in Puerto Rico, um, which would be a more expensive trip for for many people. Um, I, I think that was fantastic. Um, and I think maybe especially for the, the, some of the newer folks, um, folks who's, who don't have the freedom of professional development dollars, um, to be able to participate in a, in a virtual environment, um, and to be able to support their peers and their colleagues was just, just fantastic. Um, I will say I, I, in a, uh, on a personal note, I, uh, I commented to Kevin Thomas afterward that um, it was pretty much the same as it would have been face to face. Cause I couldn't have looked at him or Aaron when I was saying what I was saying anyway. So the fact that I couldn't see their faces was all just perfectly fine by me, <laughs> but, but I do think it was um, I think the, the executive office put together a, a fantastic conference in cooperation with all of the volunteers and the committee and all of that in a way that um I think just really speaks to the strength of the association. I think there's, you know, I've, I've worked with other associations and everybody, every association person does incredible work, everyone that i across all associations. Um, But I think the passion that our, our EO puts into the work with membership is, um, is unmatched, at least from what I've seen.
1: Yeah, um, I, I, I mean, I suppose I've been, uh, in the sector for 15 years and very involved in a number of different organizations. And I think. I would echo um what you're saying there now it was interesting what you said in relation to your parents being able to watch because obviously doing a little bit of research into this uh, and looking back and you had said like it, it's 10 years since you uh, you know received uh your your doctorate and you had commented actually on facebook recently that at that event yes. your mom cried and asked the dissertation chair could they say dr yes. Ashrambo one more time yes. so you
4: just say it one more time and i'm you know i'm i'm not a first-generation college student, um, but I've said I often feel like it because uh, my mom did not have choices on where she went to college. And my dad went to college at night on the GI Bill. Um, he had been in the military and went to went to college, uh, went to eight years of night school um, to get his degree from Rutgers. And so neither of them had a traditional uh, college path. And so I am... Um, I have a cousin who's an attorney, but other than that, I'm the only one with an advanced degree and um, first one to get the doctorate. And um, my my as I said earlier, my my I have the most wonderfully supportive parents in the world. And my mother would have been just as happy and proud if I was accepting something for being, you know, the, the student of the month when I was in fourth grade as she did seeing me complete my doctorate but there there's something to um to to having parents who have put their all into uh supporting their kids my sister and I and um feeling like there's a certain amount of what you do and what you achieve that is your um for lack of a better word your payback to them that it's you know all the all the work and the the sacrifice that you made was was for the good because I've been able to do this and I am, I truly believe I am, I am able to do what I am able to do because I have always had a supportive family and have always had people who, um, I have said it's one of the things I see in so many of my students that they don't have a safety net. And, um, you know, they are flying without a safety net and hoping for the best. And I know that no matter what, no matter what happens, I have a safety net in my family and I could fall on my face and they would be there to pick me back up. And that's just, you know, my, my mom literally looked at my dissertation chair on the day that I completed because both my parents showed up to my, my dissertation defense. And when I walked back in the room and my dissertation chair said, congratulations, Dr. Oshambo, my mother with tears streaming down her face said, can, can you just say that one more time? just one more time. And my, luckily my dissertation chair is fantastic. And she was happy to do so and made my mom very happy, but you know, it's, it really is. There's a lot to be said for um, for having that support and having that um to knowing that even when you fall, you're not really going to fall. And I I hope that, you know, that's sort of the same purpose that I spoke about earlier with our students mm-hmm. that no matter what, you're not, you're, you're not really going to fall because somebody at the institution's got your back. And that's, that's very much, that's, that's my goal for, mm-hmm. for what we do with our students, is to give them the same sense of security that I always had, that I was very fortunate to have from my family
1: yeah i know absolutely and and that is what enables us to to make those decisions to take chances to endeavor to to move forward when you know somebody has your back and they will support you be it family be it friends being an advisor or someone else in the institution i think that's really important now, I suppose as we we move towards the, the end of uh, this interview, and look, we could keep going, but I am interested, you always have things on the go, and I mentioned in in your bio that um, you are one of the editors of Nakata's upcoming text on advisor training and development. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
4: Sure. So uh, Rebecca Hapes and I are the um, the editors, along with uh, Ashley from the executive office, who is our, our managing editor. um. We are, the, this is the third edition of that publication, um, and it's really the, the first time that that, that that work will be published since the core competencies came out. So it's really the, the question of how do we integrate the core competencies into advisor training and development that sort of serves as a foundation for the text. Um, we are currently, we are just about a month, just under a month away from getting first drafts from all of the authors. Um, And then that work will continue uh, with drafts and review and content editors and content reviewers and all of that um, for just about a year. And then we will have the final uh, version of the the manuscript to the editors, I'm sorry, to the publishers next October so October of 21 for publication at the 22 conference. So um, that book will be released at the 2022 conference in, I think it's in Portland, um, is where that that conference will be held. So it's a it's definitely going to be um, our labor of love for the next uh, year or so from now. And we've already been working on it for for quite a few months Um but where I'm thrilled with the diversity of the authors who we have. Um, they're coming from a variety of different, uh, backgrounds, different institutions, um, folks coming from all different uh, sort of landscapes, both some very experienced authors, as well as some folks for whom this will be a first publication. Um, So that's fantastic to see. We also have, uh, not in all of the chapters, but in most of them, we have uh, Voices from the Field, which is uh, Nakata's essentially view from uh, lived experience. So we have, for example, the um, theoretical chapter, on uh, advisor self care, and then we have a voices from the field being written by an advisor um, who is writing about self care and how that's part of professional development, how that's part of of a, a, a framework for professional development for advisors, and we have that in a number of the chapters. Um, and so it's really just I'm I'm thrilled with how it's shaping up. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, it's it's. It's difficult when you've got a, a process that takes as long as this one does because I like to see things get done, um, and so the you know the fact that I've got to wait a year still to see what the final book will look like is a you know it's it, that's something I wish we could speed up a little bit, um, but I, I think it'll be I I have full faith in the authors and in my my co editors for how this will end up looking and and really the the ability to create a contribution. For the organization and really more broadly for, um, for folks who are, are looking to expand their training and development for their advisors. I think it's especially important to have those texts for folks who can't make it to professional development events because it's the way that you sort of hand deliver. That information to folks in their offices, in their cubicles, and you say, "Here's here's different ways to think about this." Um, and so, I'm I'm very excited to be part of that. It's my first time as an editor. It's um, Rebecca's first time as an editor. I've written for Nakata a number of times, but this will be my first job, my first time editing a uh, text. So for me, it's a new adventure, and I'm I'm always interested in seeing what comes next.
1: Yeah, I, look, uh, it's it's. A- Earlier, I said that NACAD as, as an association is always endeavouring to, to try to Im- to make improvements. And I think you absolutely embody that, uh, whether it's, you know, your, your work in, in terms of the, the presidency and what you did there, but even outside, outside of that, you're continuing to carry that forward and really develop the, the profession continuously. So kudos to you for that. Please continue uh, with that valuable work. And uh, I definitely would like to have you back on the the podcast again in the future. Because it's funny, I mean, we're we're fifty minutes in, and uh, I know we we um have a place to go, so we we have to call a halt here. But we've I feel we've only scratched the surface on what we could discuss. So, Dr. Karen Ashenbult, thank you very much for ch- chatting to me today.
4: You're very welcome. And if if nothing else, we'll just do this once a year and and catch up every year.
1: So I want to thank Karen again for taking the time to chat to me. It was great to hear about her path into advising, about how she came across Nakata, how, you know, it didn't work first time around, but she discovered it again. Okay, we have an interview now with Tiffany Schmier. Tiffany is a senior academic advisor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and We had a really interesting conversation with her a few weeks back now, just after the NACADA um, virtual annual conference this year, and I think you will enjoy hearing from her.
0: All right. Next up, we have Tiffany Schmier. Tiffany earned her undergraduate degree in communication studies and her graduate degrees in educational leadership and school psychology at UNLV. She has worked in advising full-time since 2006, first with the UNLV Honors College and then with the UNLV Academic Success Center, which houses Exploring Majors, the Major Pathways Program, and works with returning and non-degree-seeking students. Tiffany enjoys working with students from all different majors and ensuring they know about the many campus resources available to them as they pursue their degree. She has been involved with both NACADA and the UNLV Academic Advising Council in many capacities. In her free time, she enjoys spending time with her family and cats, working on her blog, and taking road trips
1: to the beach when possible. Tiffany, welcome to the podcast.
3: <laughs> Thank you.
1: We're very pleased to have the opportunity to chat to you, Tiffany. And I suppose one of the things we frequently start with are asking our guests is uh, how they got into academic advising. I suppose it helps our listeners to maybe understand them a little bit better if they can understand your story and, and why you came to work in higher ed. So
3: I think I have kind of the story that's similar to a lot of people that I didn't necessarily set out to work in higher ed. Um, I was a first-generation student. I really liked college. I didn't really have a lot of advising experiences. Back then, UNLV's advising looked a lot different um, than it did today. And so I didn't really have anyone to ask, and then I would go figure things out, and then my friends would be like, oh, I heard you knew how to do it. Or like my friends said, you helped make their schedule. And so I enjoyed doing it. It was fun to me. Um, I actually worked as a reporter when I first graduated and for the local newspaper. And what I liked about that was kind of like finding the resources and finding the people and building their relationships. And so I took a class just kind of as a non-degree, like, let me just try this out. And someone was like, oh, you should join the higher ed program. Like you should get a graduate assistantship. And I was like, what is that? Like, I don't even know what that is. Um, I didn't have parents that went to college. My dad actually got his GED when I was about five. And so I didn't really have anyone I could ask And so I started and then they're like, oh, grad assistantship will help pay your tuition. And I'm like, this sounds awesome. Like, how do you do it? And I went and I showed up dressed for a job interview because that's what I felt it was. And I remember the, interviewee who was the center director was like I am so impressed you're so dressed up and I'm thinking people come to these not dressed up (laughs) Um, and so she hired me I worked in the education advising center actually as a graduate assistant first and then they were able to hire me and then I transitioned to the honors college and I was there for a decade that is definitely a different kind of advising Um, I think high achieving advisors can resonate with this is a lot of times, well, they already know what they need to do, or they're good at it, or why do they need your help? Like, they're the students who get all A's. Um, but it's a different kind of advising. And at one point, I was the only advisor in the whole Honors College. And so I became kind of like the Honors College mom <laughs> It was kind of the joke. Um, but I would set up social events for them. We would bring in food for them for midterms. I had a lot of hats. And then when I had to do my school psych practicum, I just couldn't manage full-time, more than full-time even, advising with that. So I transitioned to the ASC. And then, and it's something I might bring up later, but I realized that school psych wasn't what I thought it was. I thought it was like a deeper level of advising And it's more, at least in my state, it's more testing for special education. And so I decided that I would like to stay at the ASC. And then I was able to be hired on full time. And I've been there now. I can't believe it. But I've been there a little bit over three years. So time flies.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely time does fly. And um, yeah, because you'll like blink and you're like, it's been three years. What's going on? Yeah. So let's kind of go back maybe to your time in uh, the Honors College, um, you know, because Like you're saying, I think a lot of times, you know, when, when people might think honor students, they're like, oh, they have it all together. They have the excellent grades, overachievers. They're, you know, doing multiple things. They have, you know, overloaded on classes or whatnot. Can you talk about from your time in the honors program? Like, was there a structure to the honors college with, with the students, with those classes and is there anything that you feel like if, a, if an advisor does end up meeting with a student who happens to be an honor student, anything you they, they should know when they're working with honor students?
3: So I would say our college definitely did because we actually had a curriculum that replaced the general education. And so we had a set number of classes. Hey, you have to take these requirements. You have to take world language no matter your major. And that definitely got some pushback from some majors who are like, I don't have room for this. My major is already so full. How do you expect me to do all of this? Um, And I think something to also account for is that honor students come in with a lot of credits. They come in with a lot of AP credits. We're seeing or we're seeing an increase in dual enrollment. I would have 17-year-olds with associate's degrees who had no idea what they wanted to actually do. They just did the classes. Um, And so I think working with an honor student, don't assume. That's like, I know that's really cliche advice, but don't assume. Um, A lot of times students didn't necessarily have the home environment that supported that or understood it. Um, Or sometimes they said I was the only person in their life that was not stressing them out. (laughs) So, which I would think I would be. um, But sometimes they're like, no, you're the only person who like gets it. That's like, don't take organic chemistry and physics and Calc 2 all at once. Um, And so that was always a nice thing. And I would say if you get an honor student, like let them know about so many outside of the classroom opportunities. I feel like so many of my students really flourished with like undergraduate research or they got involved in a lab for psychology or they went study abroad. So, so many of my students would be like, I don't have time to study abroad. How am I supposed to study abroad? I want to graduate in three years. Right. And so I think being open to that, and I actually think working with the honor students has actually helped make me a better exploration advisor in that same way of like everyone's experience doesn't have to look the same. So that's what I would say like high achieving, really great students, super generally super responsive, but also, and I went to a great session on this, but really struggle with failure. Um, I was usually the first person that they ever had to admit that they were failing to. And that that was hard for a lot of them. And so that's actually where my interest in school site kind of came out.
1: And Tiffany, I suppose um, you know, what was interesting to me was when you when you talked about your path into advising, you talked about, you know, being a first gen student and almost, you know, being your own advisor in some ways in in college um and then I suppose now your involvement with Nakata and in this professional association I'm wondering um how you came to to find out about nakata and I know we'll delve into later on your current roles with Nakata, but how was it that you uh first came across nakata and and got involved
3: so I was I was a professional um I remember hearing about it as a grad student, but I don't think it was super well-known on our campus. Actually, the year that I got hired as a full-time advisor, they hired 15 of us at one time. And so I think that really pushed for us to be organized where the year before it was just kind of ramping up. Um, But I remember they sent me to a conference. It was actually Indianapolis and I had never been there. So it was my first Nakata. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's so many people like me. Like, cause a lot of people say, oh, you're a school counselor. And it's like, no that's different (laughs) um and so it was nice to have others who maybe were grad students or from my region or even just other regions that i was like hey i'm a new advisor too i remember i went to charlie's session like for welcoming the new advisors and there were so many of us there And i remember thinking okay it's okay to be new right like they have a plan for us kind of thing
0: and since Nakata, or during your time in Nakata, one of the things you most recently um, have been a part of is Region 9. And you are part of the steering committee, you're the communications social media mm-hmm. coordinator. I'm always curious uh, when when uh, folks apply for these positions. And you know, what, what was kind of like the driving factor that was like, I want to get more involved, and I want to be part of the steering committee?
3: It was a little scary, actually, I wasn't so confident of like oh i could do this but i was like i have a blog i do this i enjoy doing this um when i was in honors i kind of did it de facto until i had a communications director um and it was just like hey i could do this with other advisors or i could get to know them and i was like okay i'm gonna do it so Nevada actually has a huge presence on the Region 9 Steering Committee right now, which I don't ever recall in my past, if I'm being honest, that there was so many of us. Um, but I was like, I'm going to try this. And I will tell you, when I found out that I like won the election or, or whatever, I like ran down the hall cheering to my colleague. I was like, guess what? You know? <laughs> i was so excited and also scared. Um, and I think that would be something I've grown closer to the region that way. I've gotten to know, like, I mean, Sherry and I will just randomly text and I tease her cause she'll send me pictures of the beach on like Friday night. Right. And I'm just like, ah, oh, so jealous. But I think it's, it's humanized it for me a little bit. I feel more connected cause we have institutions in Southern Nevada, but there's not a lot of us compared to California where I feel like in California you have just cities and, and, schools, and schools and schools and schools and schools. And I don't feel like that here, we have a community college, we have a state college, we have UNLV, and then we don't really have anything unless you go pretty much up north, um, so many miles away, or much more rural, and so it made me feel more connected to my peers. Um, I think it's also a good way to test the waters of something that you like to do, um, and it's definitely pushed me to grow, so, like, I've worked with Mary, and I've worked with you, Matt, I've worked with, like, hey, can you make content for this, and it's, like, don't ever think it, Tiffany. You just have to get it out there, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think it's a great opportunity, and it's it's a nice way to kind of find your peers.
1: Yeah, and I think, Tiffany, what might be what would be interesting is, uh, in the current uh, you know uh, COVID environment, there I know has been pressure on. Advisors on on a whole host of different people within higher ed to generate content to to have that engagement uh, with the rest of the university with students. How I mean, when you go about creating content or when you've gone about your in your work in in your role with region nine um in terms of social media and comms is there any advice that you would offer to to listeners who you know might not be so familiar with social media or might really not have used it in a personal sense previously
3: i would say it fits for like an office or an advising center is to have a plan um to have a point person who's, who is doing it. So we have peer mentors that use the academic success centers, but they have to get their posts approved. So we like know what's going out and when it's going out. Um, something that Nicole, who's also on the steering committee who I work with have and I have been talking about, is really having an outreach plan or a communication plan that's timely but is not overwhelming. We feel like our students are getting so many emails that they're not reading them. So um, we had students who are like, I didn't know anything about SU grading. I guarantee you they got like three or four emails about it. Um, And so I've been trying to be timely. I've been trying to like post when I feel like someone will see it and they'll be able to act on it. So sometimes I'll wait till the afternoon to post. Because I know in the morning a lot of us get in as advisors. We like focus on our email. What do I have to do today? We're not necessarily looking for updates from across campus. but I would say start simple to start with the platform that you're most familiar with. Um, I am not a big storier on Instagram. I let Sherry do the stories. Um, I prefer to do the feed, but I have a plan. So I create all the content in Canva and then I'm like, okay. And I even go down to, I alternate colors because I don't want the feed to all be green. Okay. But, um, I'll be like, okay, on Monday and Wednesday, I'm posting about awards. You know, on Thursday, I'm posting about election because it's two days before the Nakata election. Or, I try to keep it timely. I try to keep it relevant because I know people that follow us are getting a lot from their institution and from Nakata in general. So I try to keep it really region specific too.
0: Yeah, and uh, whether it's uh, something you're posting for your your office social media or for Region Nine as a communication social media coordinator is do you have a certain like thought process with creating the content in the sense of when you decide you want to do a video or do a story or put something in the feed or a a general post or quote or something? um, How do you decide between what works best and or is it like trial and error and kind of see what happens?
3: I would say a little bit of both. I can see on Facebook how many impressions we get or like I made an animated social media post, per Canva. And to me, it didn't really work so well on our Instagram. It didn't get as much interaction. Because when you post it, it looked like a green box, which is not very exciting, right? Um, And so that was a trial and error for me, where I was like, oh, it'll be animated, and it fell flat. Um, I am a little bit obnoxious about the color scheme, but I try to keep it within Nakata's kind of core colors. so If you're scrolling, hey, that's a Nakata post, or hey, Mm -hmm. that's a UNLB poster. Um, things like that. But I also look to other regions for ideas. I'm, hello, region two, if you listen, I am totally going to steal some of their ideas <laughs> because I like them. Um, but I do think that's something I wish we could have done at Nakata that I was really hoping to do was to connect with the other comp coordinators and say, like, what's working in a region? What is your institution saying works or they're sick of? Or, um, you know, I I don't know if you consider Reddit social media. Um, but I know our institution, the students created a Reddit, and there'll be times that I'll go read the Reddit just to see what they're talking about. Like, what are they concerned about or, you know, what happened that made them upset? Right.
1: I think that's really smart. I, I think that's uh, a, a good idea is to, to try to, to find out, you know, what is it that the the students maybe are, are feeling and thinking, but not or, or you know, saying out loud or or saying to the institution, um, but talking about the institution, and, and you can gather from that. So, uh, I think kudos to you on on going to to Reddit and and then helping to to maybe be <laughs> proactive in solving those uh, those problems. Um, I suppose, Tiffany, in thinking then about like your your work in in your your own um, institution, um, you've kind of talked us through your history a a little bit. But in terms of what's going on right now at at UNLV um, with with COVID, uh, how how are things there at the moment?
3: So we're pretty remote. We have campuses open, but it's definitely not like the campus of 2019. right? It does not look the same. Um, I I've gone a few times to pick things up at certain times, and I will say they have a lot of strict protocols in place. But I feel like the students are being respectful of them. Um, we now have like at our library, I had to swipe in for the first time, and that's I think helping them keep count of how many are in the space because it's pretty large. And that's never something we had to do. It was you know free in, free out, multiple entrances and exits. Um, I think they're communicating pretty well. They're pretty open about this is the newest update. This is what came out. Like this week, it came out that we'll have virtual commencement. Um, and I think students kind of knew that that was the direction that it was going, but I do think they were disappointed too. Um, they've worked really hard for it and maybe at some time we'll have a super commencement and we'll make up to them (laughs) all the commencements that we couldn't do in person. Um, but I think, For the most part, the students are pretty understanding. There's definitely been some bumps about, oh, we use Zoom, we use WebEx, we use X, we use Y. Um, So definitely helping students understand that. I was just telling my supervisor, we do WebEx as a default now because we can show them, you know, here's your degree sheet. Here's this. But I've had a lot this week who will call or log in but turn off their camera. And I always say, like, I'm okay with that if you're okay with that. Like, you don't have to turn it on, but can you see me? Can you see what I'm showing you? Because that's why WebEx works better. Um, It is interesting to talk to, like we say, a pair of initials (laughs) rather than the student. Um, But I understand. I had a student when I presented to a class last week who had a little sibling that just kept running in and out. Um, And I think having some grace for the students, you know, like, There's a lot going on. They may not have a real quiet space. Like you can't see my space, but I don't have a separate room. I'm in our living room and I have an eighth grader and a fourth grader who at some point are schooling (laughs) during the day as well. Um, So I think kind of helping students understand that this isn't normal for us either and that we're just adjusting. And I feel like the students, I've mentioned it to my supervisor. They're happy just to talk to somebody outside of their house. um That's definitely the feeling I've gotten. Though some things in our community are open, people are working, but tourism is a big driver of our economy, and that's a lot different right now. So
0: yeah, especially for you know Nevada and of course Las Vegas, you know, and yeah, yeah, how major that is, where you know <laughs> yeah. have, have yeah. casinos and concerts and all this fun stuff, and yeah. Now I want to go back to the social media for a, a second. Um, sure. So. You mentioned using Canva. Mm-hmm. Now, with with you using Canva, are you using like the free version of that, the pro version? So we,
3: I originally started using the free version. Um, mm-hmm. So probably for most of last year, and then we have a. I don't exactly know who runs it. Um, we have through our advising council a tech commission, and we um. can submit requests. And you know, some offices are granted a hundred dollars, and so we had to come together and kind of agree and some people wanted it you know photoshop and i was like i don't know photoshop <laughs> well enough to do this um and then my supervisor was sort of like well let's get one that's user-friendly because like we have ga student workers things like that um and so now we have the pro and i'm getting spoiled by the pro so many images
0: <laughs> would you recommend um anyone that might be interested whether they're part of Nakata doing social media or they're doing it for their campus, uh, if they particular institution, do you, do you feel the free version could still work for uh, folks to utilize that? Or would pro kind of be the one to, to get?
3: I would probably start with free. And see, like, for me, what I kept running into is the backgrounds I wanted or the picture I wanted was a dollar or this. And I was like, by the time I continually pay for these, we're going to end up having paid for it. Um, And I used to use other ones that have – they're no longer free. Like, when I started using for my blog, I loved PicMonkey, but it's just not free anymore. Um, But I didn't ever have formal schooling, even though I have a communications degree. I never had formal schooling on creating ad campaigns or – and so a lot of it's been learning by YouTube or just trying it out. Um, and so I think Canvas is really user-friendly if it's mm-hmm. something you're new to. And so I would definitely recommend, like, try it out. Microsoft Publisher is my nemesis. So anything that I can do to avoid Publisher, I do. <laughs> so,
0: Hey, why is it your nemesis?
3: I think I am just too perfectionist for it. Like, when I'll build a newsletter, things will move. And I'm just like, I just want to... Alter this part, and so I will spend way longer than necessary.
1: So I, I think there are going to be lots of people listening to this that will be able to empathize <laughs> with uh, when you when you move something uh, a millimeter <laughs> in a Microsoft operating system, and everything shifts on the page, and you think how how did that happen? Do do you think that you, you mentioned earlier? I think that you you worked as a a, a journalist um, before co- coming into to higher ed. Do you think that has helped? Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose in in terms of um, the the role of Region Nine and and in terms of creating content, maybe not on the the visual side of things, but even thinking up uh, stories that might be interesting.
3: And I would say it even helps with advising. I got a compliment. And I was a new, new journalist. I was a young college grad (laughs) when this happened. Um, But we had always been taught, you know, get to know the people you interview. Send a thank you note. Like, I don't, good etiquette, I guess. And I still remember we have a little city adjacent to us that we were also responsible for reporting on their stories and things like that. And there, I want to say she was like their mayor's liaison. I don't remember her exact title. But she would always answer me. And she would not answer my editor in chief. And he was always like, how come she answers you? And I was like, I don't know. Ask her. Right. Like, but she always would answer me. He would come to me, like send this to her. I need an answer. And so finally he asked her and she's like, she sent me a thank you note. He said, she said, I worked with you for years and she only worked with me like two times and she sent me a thank you note. And I was like, yes. (laughs) so i just think i used to tease my honor students but it goes back to the content creation it goes back to advising um someone helped you along the way someone made a copy for you when you were frantic to go to an interview somebody took time out of their day to help you and so i have a student right now i literally drive by his law firm when i commute home (laughs) from work and he has a lovely law firm and lovely luxury cars and they're always parked outside and it's just like Remember who helped you get there, if that makes sense. Like, there's always a story. Someone has their own story. It may not be visible to you. But, you know, if a student's in front of you and they're upset about failing, there's probably more to it than they just failed the class. Like, they're feeling something.
0: So I do want to talk about the, the thank you. But before I do that, you had mentioned about um, Nakata hoping that uh, there would have been an opportunity to talk with the other uh, region, uh, communication social media coordinators. Uh, the thing about it is, you, if if it hasn't happened yet and you bring up the idea, uh, you're responsible for it. So, <laughs> so it'll be like, hey, that's a fantastic idea. Since so you thought about it, can you start to coordinate that? Maybe contact everyone, set up a meeting? <laughs> okay,
3: well, I'm willing to be responsible. <laughs> but I think it would be fun. I might do it. It might be, <laughs> even if it's just a Zoom or a WebEx call, like, I think it would be nice to put faces with names like I have followed every region's Instagram and I think they follow us but it's nice to see oh they're doing you know this story or I just saw one I think it's region five somebody's doing really something really cool it's like points of pride or something and I was like oh we should do that too like that's a cool idea so I think it would be cool even if one day like all the regions did something to celebrate like something related to nakata
0: oh and then one more thing before i get to the thank you would be instagram because you mentioned instagram (laughs) there was a goal that you had for instagram for region (laughs) nine
3: yes there (laughs) is (laughs) i have no shame (laughs) um i want to be the number one instagram we are nine months old roughly i started it in like late january and we're number two right now out of all of the regions um Region two is number one. So shout out to region two. They do a lot of really awesome content. I need 55 more people, I think, (laughs) but they have also existed much longer. So I should give myself some.
0: Well, Region Nine members and non-Region Nine members, uh, <laughs> go follow the Region Nine Nakata Instagram account. Yeah, yeah. Make us number one. Number so, one, even
3: if it's yeah. for a day, just okay. give me a no. But um, you're
0: you're mentioning your your the thank you, and and that really ties into the Nakata virtual conference because the the um, keynote that ended the conference, the person was talking about saying thank you and you know being appreciative of people and. It just really shows like those words go a long way. And, and clearly you have a great example of showing that saying thank you goes a long way. Speaking of the virtual conference. Um you know, you got to attend it as an you know quote unquote attendee and it was virtual. What mm-hmm. was your experience uh, with that virtual conference? How did you like it?
3: I liked it. I think next year, if I was to do another virtual, I would be a little more protective of my time. So like mm-hmm. I would see students in the morning and then jump onto the conference and then like jump back out. And I feel like I could have maybe streamlined it a little bit for myself. Like I would block 10 to three. I would do a couple lives, a couple on demands. Um, but I think, I needed to set some more boundaries to make it like more conference-like, if that makes sense. Um, But I did enjoy it. I was joking with a colleague this morning when we were put in breakouts in one of the larger live sessions, you know how we always are like, students, don't talk in the breakouts. We sat there for three minutes, (laughs) and then we started talking. (laughs) So we literally like, it was like one of those, like, well, are you going to talk? Am I going to talk? Who's going to talk first? and then we were really getting into it. And then, you know, the breakout's like, your warning, 30 seconds. But I think it was a good experience to connect with people and just to kind of see people where they're at. Like, everyone's kind of in the same situation right now, even though we're separated. And I really, I can I talk about my favorite session or one of my favorite sessions? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So I went to one about reconceptualization of failure mm-hmm. and it was by the University of Arizona. And I liked it because- they talked about also what an institution can learn from failure, and I hadn't ever heard it presented that way. So, like, if you have a class that has a high withdrawal rate consistently or a high fail rate consistently, let's see what's happening there. That there's data points that you can, can you can collect, and I hadn't really ever thought of failure in that way from like the institutional perspective. I mean, we always know classes for students like this is hard. Don't pair it with this wow. class that's also difficult. Um, I mean, I would routinely in honors have students who would say, "I would like to take OChem and Physics in the same semester." No, no, you really don't want to do that. (laughs) Um, You can, but I really wouldn't recommend it. And I think it was interesting to hear other advisors say, "You know, for some, failure was about shame. For some, it was frustration. You know, for some of us, it's well, what's happening in this class that maybe is making it have a high fail rate? Not saying it's the professor or anything. It might just be the structure." Um, Having labs online this semester is definitely something a lot of my students have had anxiety about, which I understand, or math math online has been the biggest source, I would say, of anxiety that I've heard. And so just being sensitive to it. um, And I really liked the way that presentation was like be sensitive to it maybe since they're really comfortable taking four classes online and then they have one they really want to take on
1: campus I I like uh, your what you said about the the breakout room because it's something I've, I've definitely noticed that there can sometimes be this you know we, we we view students in 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 a way and we say and, and I hear things said about them like I've been at conferences and, and I will hear presenters say oh students spend all the time on the phone uh, and I, you know I look around and everyone's on their phone it's like this <laughs> (laughs) what people do it's not students it's people so I I think sometimes we we lose sight of that um and I think Tiffany you've you've given us some some great insights I'm I'm wondering were there any were there any other takeaways that you have from um the the conference last week any of the sessions that you've attended um or or anything that you would have liked to to see implemented um
3: Sure. I may have actually missed this part. So if I if it was offered, please tell me. But I was in a large session and I was in a breakout room with four individuals and we were having a good conversation. And I wanted to like chat her after just to say, oh, can I get your email? Or like, can I follow up? And like, I couldn't because like chat was blocked. And I was like, well, how am I going to figure out who she was? Like, I remember the institution and I didn't want to like stalk her. But at the same time, I was like, we're having a good conversation and I didn't have like the opportunity to be like, here's my business card. So it was like, how do I do this virtually? Right. Um, And that was the one part in the large session that I was like, Oh, there's so many of us. I can see her. But then it was like towards the end and I was like, Oh, how do I keep this connection going? That was difficult. Um, because it was definitely like, oh, hey, we could work. I believe she was in Colorado. So I was like, well, maybe, you know, I can find a way to connect with you. But that's something that I, I think was hard. Um, I actually met a peer at the Region 9 conference. We actually were paired together in a presentation. And then we ended up connecting and making a presentation that was approved for regional <laughs> for 2020. Um, and so I value those connections. So if I would just say, like, finding a way to, like, Like a virtual business card wall or something—I don't Um, know—something like that would be cool. And I think something that was interesting and it came up in Region Nine yesterday a little bit is also being sensitive to like people or can get zoomed out, right? Like depending on how many you are doing in a day,
0: it is just overload sometimes. (laughs) I realize I haven't
3: seen my colleagues in person like since June. We did like a slightly staggered in the office, but like all of us together has not been since March
0: yeah uh same here i mean i I've been into the office a couple times um and so I've seen maybe two of my colleagues since March actually in person but oh, yeah. yeah that that's been it everyone else has been through zoom Colin, are you have you seen your colleagues since <laughs> since uh, being being off campus
1: no and and I had the experience where i I was traveling when and I and I ended up coming back to Ireland. I, I I literally got back to my apartment and 15 minutes later, they announced that Ireland was going into lockdown. So I actually haven't seen any of my colleague in person since February.
3: Wow, that's crazy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> And I don't I don't know when I will see them we'll see. next. Uh, I think we've kind of accepted that, that as a, you know, even when we are back, it will be in staggered teams. So potentially we're talking summer 2021, but we'll see.
3: Yeah, it's it's crazy to think Ooh. like 2021 is almost here in a way. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah, like, 2021 is almost here, but then it's probably gonna be, like, half the year in 2021 <laughs> before maybe we get to yeah, see everyone again.
3: <laughs> like, I actually, I know I was joking, that, but, like, I'm like, is Bats, are Bats living in my office? Like, I hope not, like, <laughs> right. you know, but I'm kind of, like, I'm set up at home. Most of our students are not actually walking in, they're calling, um, so... <laughs> right. And I definitely had students this year who were like, miss, can I change to all online? I have a vulnerable family member. Like, um, I, I was actually surprised how many were like, no, please shift me the other direction. Right. Shift me online.
0: And speaking of your office, so the UNLV Academic Success Center, so we kind of heard a little bit about it in your bio, but can you talk more about your particular center, uh, the the students that that you work with?
3: Sure. So we are an advising center within a success center, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we are one arm. We're also um, in a space where we share it with what we call academic eligibility specialists, which is for our student athletes. And then we have tutoring and what we call um, supplemental instruction, and then a little bit of dual enrollment. And we have academic success coaching, which is kind of the third arm. So we, as an advising center, are the only center at UNLV who will see non-degree seeking students. So every other center, you must be admitted. So we will see non-degrees who sometimes are just in town for a year, won't take a class. Sometimes they're just trying to get admitted, lots of different situations. Um, We see exploring majors. And that's what we call undeclared. So exploring and the major pathways, which we have for business, engineering, and science. And that's based on math placement. And so our colleges for science and engineering, they must complete pre-calculus or be able to place into pre-calculus right out of high school. And then for um, business, they must be able to place in the college algebra. So we have a pretty good selection. We also have a lot of returning students, which this spring was really interesting actually. Um, I had two in one week. That were returning students to UNLV from the 1990s. And so, trying to kind of figure out where they were and what they needed, and hey, you can't really hang out with me too long because we're exploring. It's really about getting you back in. Um, and they're actually, one of them is actually going to graduate at the end of spring already. So, less than a year from yes. coming back after 20 years. Pretty awesome. Um, so, we have a mixture of students. We have first gen, brand new, you know, this is all new to me. We have students that have just stopped out for a while. Um, We also work heavily with students who are on university probation and suspension. And so pretty good mixture. Um, There is about, let's see, one, two, I got to count because we have an assistant director and a director, and then we have five advisors, which if if you include me. Um, And so we have a pretty good mix um every year we have the largest orientation I think this year we brought in over 900 through orientation just for us alone so we're always pretty busy in the summer and this summer was was different (laughs) to do it all virtual um but I would say the students that we get are definitely let's see I don't know enjoyable in the sense that like they're not so like, I'm going to do this and only this, if that makes sense. Like a lot of them are interested in med school, but when I'm like, have you thought about dental or this? They're like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Um, so it's nice to be able to show them all the options or, hey, you can use X degree to do Y. Um, I think one of the biggest conversations I have is that law school does not mean you have to have a degree in political science. You know, there's a lot of options that you can look at. And so I would say it's, it's really interesting to see how they figure out what they like and don't like.
1: I think one of the things that I really enjoy about the, the podcast is hearing about the di- different advi- advisors in different institutions and different systems. And for uh, our Irish system is so different to what you have, Tiffany. So for me, it's fascinating to to hear about the, the different groups of students that you can work with and the different tracks that they can take because it, it's it's probably much it's much more open I, I think in certainly in the united states we have a much more kind of railroaded <laughs> system so students kind of choose um if they're doing engineering it, it's pretty much engineering that they're going to take they, they will have um my maybe minor options here and and there but the vast majority of what they take is is pretty much um going to be engineering and focused on that so we have some of the the supports uh, are, are are similar in some respects and, and and so different in in others so um the the interaction that you have and I, I can hear kind of the the passion you have for the um for the role that you have um in in what you're you know outlining there and I think that kind of shines through in in what you're in your in your work and clearly you've worked in the area and and you've had different jobs and it, it's been really interesting during the interview to hear you talk about the the different cohorts of uh of students and uh i i have uh, enjoyed it immensely
0: yes <laughs> Now, one of the things um, that we have a, a shared like for is coffee. Yes. And I feel like that was one of the things that you meet like on steering committee meetings, like uh, with the webcam. There was like, hey, is that coffee you have there <laughs> and different types of coffee? So where did your like for coffee? Cover? Is it something that was kind of like a necessity because of the job or hey, I really like the taste of this?
3: So guess what I did when I was in grad school, when I was also a grad assistant? I was the Starbucks barista. <laughs> i worked out well um no i actually i worked at starbucks for a year actually like was a reporter and like when i wasn't sure if i wanted to go back to school and they had a great health insurance like policy um Mm -hmm. for someone who wasn't full-time anywhere i should say and so i worked there i definitely learned to like it i will say like a lot of people like oh it's chain coffee we went through a lot of trainings. Like I remember, we literally were like given coffee beans. We had to smell them and taste them and try them with different foods, and um, you would really see like why this tastes like blueberries or or whatever. And so I definitely like that. I like finding unique spots. Um, if you ever come to Vegas, I will give a shout out to we have two really great local spots, but Grouchy Johns, and they actually have they're both UNLV grads not in business. And so that's why I tell my students all the time. They own a coffee shop. One of them was a computer science major. And I think one was an English major. And they own two coffee shops in town, plus a trailer that they come to our campus sometimes. And then we have a place called the Coffee Class, which is just so good. So if you ever come, really small local business, great coffee. I learned more about pour overs from him. So yeah. So not a necessity, just easily accessible (laughs) and
0: yeah and do those coffee shops have tea because i know colin Mm -hmm. would probably enjoy that
3: yes uh grouchy dogs not so much but coffee class has tea his newest one is a oh gosh what is it called i want to say it's a pea berry tea it's blue i don't know if you've heard of that
1: a blue tea that that sounds interesting
3: yeah i'll send you the link when we're done but it's (laughs) awesome um and so he's he's a real small shop. And so during the pandemic and things, they were closed for like three months, and then they just opened up because they're not really set up like they don't have a drive-through, so they're not really set up for a lot of like yeah. Um But yes, I love coffee. I love cats. <laughs> so i have the quintessential crazy cat lady. Um, my coworkers will attest to that. I'm actually writing a book right now a kid's book and i have an illustrator in argentina who is willing so i'm trying to like facilitate that process because he sent me a quote and i'm like i don't know if this is in his currency or mine and like how do all these copyrights work um so i'm trying to figure out like i didn't realize so maybe i'm not so familiar but i didn't realize you have to buy your own isbn number so like amazon will give you one but it's only good for amazon
1: that's a that, that's a proper little golden nugget of uh, of information that that you provided there because I I was blissfully unaware of that as well but that's that's really interesting to to hear.
3: Yeah, apparently if you self publish, you can have one, but it only works for them, is what my understanding is. Yeah,
1: I I think this has just been really fascinating to to talk to you and to kind of get an insight into what your day-to-day has been like and there has th- that 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 at the end like that th- there has been little nuggets uh sprinkled throughout this and um I, I i've really enjoyed chatting to you um it's been great to to get to to know you a little bit i think listeners will really have enjoyed the interview as well so Thank you for taking the time to chat to myself and Matt.
3: Yeah, you too. Thank you. I hope everything goes well for you for the rest of fall. And me and Matt eventually will be able to experience fall. (laughs) We always say here that it is cold by Halloween. So we'll see if if it sticks.
0: Tiffany, thanks, and I'm happy you are a guest on the podcast. Always wonderful getting to chat about social media and advising. You are awesome to work with in Region 9, and I look forward to our continued chats about coffee. Well, we have reached the end of this episode, but episode 24 will be out in early December. For those of you that are finishing up your semesters early, best to you and to those who are finishing in December. We're almost there. Hang in there. You got this. If you don't already follow the Adventures in Advising podcast, like the podcast, and consider leaving a comment as well. You can also find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. Take care, and as always, keep advising.